If discipleship isn't really about Jesus, then it's not really discipleship. Where we just left off in the book of Acts last week, chapter 18, here's where we landed. The Old and the New Testaments are about Jesus. This makes Christianity about Jesus. Christianity is not some weird offshoot of Judaism. It's actually the completion of it. That this means for the Christian, it is all about Jesus. And so following that, here's where we're going today. If it really is all about Jesus, then discipleship or following Jesus has to be all about Jesus. And I realize that that might sound a little bit generic. Like, what church website doesn't say that? Right? What Christian doesn't say that? But as we follow the continuing adventures of the Apostle Paul today, he actually meets people who say they are disciples, and they say the name Jesus, but that doesn't mean that they necessarily follow him. In other words, there are real disciples of Jesus and there are fake ones. And we have to know the difference. So as we read the text and you're listening as various characters are introduced, I want you to consider, sounds not very politically correct here, I want you to consider who's really a disciple of Jesus and who isn't. And then we can answer a very, very important question after that. What do we do next? So let's begin with the first seven verses of chapter 19. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and he came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we haven't heard that there's a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So the first thing Luke tells us here is that to be a disciple of Jesus, you must have the Holy Spirit. You must have the Holy Spirit. So let me set the scene first. Ephesus is a town that appeared last week, very quickly. It has a lot of connections to the occult and to sorcery. Some very dark stuff, as we'll find out later. It's a fairly unreached people group with many evil spirits, as it were. And Paul just kind of skimmed past it last week on his way to do other things. And his friend Apollo stayed and did some work and it went all right. And now Paul is here and he's doing what he always does in a new place. 
And what you and I do, he looks for friends. He looks for the best allies that he can find. And here's what he finds in verse 1. He finds what appear to be disciples, but he asks them kind of a strange getting to know you question. He asks, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? I don't know about you, but I don't normally ask people that question right off the bat. So what I'm assuming happened is they might have bantered a little bit, and there was just something about them that made him kind of turn his head sideways and wonder, what are these people all about? So he asks them that question, and do you see their response? Their response is this, what's a Holy Spirit? They don't know. So his eyebrows, I'd like to think, go up a little bit. And he asked him a second question. Into what were you baptized? Which is another way of asking, who are you disciples of? And they say, John the Baptist. So let me just kind of bring this together here. These men are disciples, but there's no Holy Spirit. And there's not really a whiff of Jesus either. So what do you think? Are these guys disciples? I mean, it says disciples. Well, I'd like to think that it doesn't look good for these guys. But progress is about to be made very quickly. And as well, these guys aren't arguing. There's no animosity here. So Paul just kind of keeps connecting the dots for them. And here's what he says in verse 4. He, ex he explains... Here's why John the Baptist came. He came to point to Jesus. All he does here is what he did in Athens a few sermons ago. He doesn't need to explain God to them. They get it. He doesn't need to explain mankind. They get that. He doesn't need to explain the problem of sin. If they know John the Baptist, they know about sin. So he just makes the final connection to where it all goes, and that's it's all about Jesus. And guess what? They hear and they immediately drop everything and get baptized in the name of Jesus. And just to show you that it's authentic, they get the Holy Spirit and they start speaking in tongues and prophesying. So here's a question if you're looking at your outline. Why am I saying that a disciple just needs the Holy Spirit if three things just happened? Baptism, the Holy Spirit, and tongues. Do you need all of them? Well, I think it's because the first two, baptism and the Holy Spirit, they're tied together. They're a package deal. And the third thing, tongues, is for now, we're going to call it icing on the cake. Okay? Let me explain the Holy Spirit and baptism... In one package deal. I'm going to read two, pa two passages. One from the Old Testament. And one from Jesus himself in the New Testament. And the Old Testament passage is the one that I read when I got up here at 10 o'clock. It's Ezekiel 36, 25 through 26. And what it does is it connects baptism and the Holy Spirit. It helps you understand they go together. So again, this is God speaking about what Jesus is coming to do. 
He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. So here's the package deal, okay? Sin is taken off. That's the water, the symbolism of baptism that we just read. And then the Holy Spirit is put on. Do you get it? Comes together. And in the New Testament, Jesus clarifies this. He confirms it, but he also explains what the Holy Spirit does. And he does that in John chapter 7, verses 38 and 39. You can write that down if you want. John chapter 7, verses 38 and 39. Here's what Jesus says. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John explains this in the next verse. Now Jesus said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So here's what Jesus said. I'll die and rise again. That's what he means by being glorified. You believe in that, so you believe that happened, and that's true. And your uncleanness is washed, so I take off the bad stuff. And then you get the Holy Spirit, and out of you flows life. Now, let me take all of that and bring it back to Paul here. We have to know this. Now that these men here in Acts 19 have put their belief in Jesus, because they know who he is now, which we see in baptism, they are cleansed from sin and they get the Holy Spirit. So, do you need the Holy Spirit to be a disciple? Yes, absolutely. You have to be reconciled to Jesus first and when you are, you get that. And you can't follow Jesus unless you're reconciled to him, unless you're made clean. Now, you probably think I'm going to sneak off to point two without talking about the tongues part. Now we're going to go there. So what about speaking in tongues? Who here does that? Anybody? Uh-oh. Does that mean you don't have the Holy Spirit? Because these guys have it, and they're speaking in tongues. Do we have a problem? I actually had a guy confront me about this 10 years ago. It was a normal conversation, and then this happened. He called it a second baptism. He went right here to this passage. And he said, man, you can be saved, but man, when you get the, when you get the tongues, when you get the baptism of the Holy Spirit, oh man, that's when the good stuff happens. Anybody ever hear that one? Yeah, now we got some hands coming up. <laughs> like, I need that, right? I struggled with that for a bit. I mean, it's right there in the text. So what do we do with it? Do we need tongues to prove that we're real disciples? Well, Paul actually would disagree. Paul. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 30, which was written about this time, 
Paul asks this rhetorical question. Do all have the gift of tongues? What that means is no. <laughs> no, they don't. Not everybody. The answer is no. Now, if you think I'm going to downplay or say they don't exist, I'm not going to do that either. I don't have a problem with them. In fact, I think they're a pretty cool gift, but I don't think they prove discipleship. I hope not, because if they do, then we get into some real spiritual have and have-nots, just like Corinthians did. So we're not celebrating tongues here. I'm not eliminating them, but I'm not celebrating them. Here's what we're celebrating. Finally, there are some real disciples in Ephesus. Finally. They are clean. They have received the Holy Spirit. They are disciples. One other neat connection here is that Paul demonstrates proper discipleship here. He shows up, he shows them it's all about Jesus, and praise God, now that's their identity too. Because if discipleship isn't really about Jesus, it's not really discipleship. What if they get tongues and they don't find out about salvation? We got a problem. So how does this apply? My main application here actually is for anybody who either doesn't believe in Jesus, they're kind of on the fence, maybe they're kind of not sure. Here's your application. Don't stop with feeling sorry for yourself. These men here, they know only about John the Baptist. They know only about the need for repentance, the weight of sin, but they don't know about the salvation of Jesus. So, here's my thought. If the weight of your sin and your past guilt is crushing you, or if life simply seems empty, don't stop with feeling sorry for yourself and don't try to meet Jesus halfway either. Don't just make a vain attempt to be a good person. Don't just show up at church or go to confession and think that'll be enough. I mean, I'm glad you're here, but that's not enough. You need to be cleaned by Jesus, and you need the Holy Spirit. That is what you need. You don't need a magic show of tongues. And for the Christian, your application is just this. Like Paul here, love people enough to show them what I just said. Press in. Somebody says they're a disciple? Fine. Do a little, do a little checkup. And my thought in all this here is once you get the Holy Spirit, life just doesn't get easy. We see this with people like Peter. We see this with people like Paul in Romans chapter 7. This new life is going to have struggles, but the Holy Spirit is going to work because it's the Holy Spirit. It's not you. And out of you, like Jesus said, will flow rivers of life. That will happen. 
And I say this because as we continue through the text, we're going to meet some professing disciples and out of them will not flow life. And Paul is going to show us what to do with people like that. So let me read verses 8 through 10. Let's look for the disciples here and see what happens. And Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way or Christianity before the congregation, he withdrew from them and he took the disciples with them, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Okay, compared to the first point, this one is going to be a good bit shorter. The second thing Luke is saying here is that disciples of Jesus move towards those seeking Jesus and away from those who stubbornly don't. Please underline that word stubbornly. First, what do I mean by moving towards people? Especially right now. People are kind of getting okay with that. What do I mean by that? Well, Paul is investing in a lot of people. We see from the text, he's investing in Jews and Greeks. People from all different cultures. And he's doing it a lot. He's teaching them for months, even years. I like to say that for these people, they're probably not like the disciples in point one. They might not know about God and man and sin or John the Baptist. They might be like, what's God? So you get it? When you meet people like that, it's not always like two conversations in one Bible study. It might take a while. The people you might meet might not have ever opened a Bible before. So what if you're not sure what kind of people to look for? So you're at a Bible study. How do you tell like who to keep investing in? Well, just like those disciples in point one, humble learners with a trajectory towards Jesus. Maybe not a straight line, but they're moving in that direction. They're probably not going to be fighting with you at every turn. But here's the thing. Not every conversion happens as quickly. So it's not simply that Paul gives a one-off gospel presentation. It's more than that, but it's not always indefinite either. I don't know about you, but I've got people I've invested in for years, and I still don't know where it's going. How about you? Anybody like that? Well, what do we do with that? Because there's tension building in verse 9. Some of these people become stubborn, and they continue in unbelief. It's not simply that they have doubts. It's that they're dead set on refusing to believe. They're starting to mock the way. They're starting to make light of who Jesus is. And so what Paul does is he moves away from those people. He separates from them. Now this implies that a lot of them might be sticking around at this gathering and maybe trying to rewrite the rules. You ever see people like that? Like they don't believe, but they're not leaving either. They try to stick around and they try to rewrite the book. 
Paul doesn't let them. He separates. So are these men disciples? No. They're not. So how does this apply? To the Christian first, move towards, move towards people seeking Jesus. Invest in them months or years. Not everybody's going to get it that quick. And again, if you're not sure who to look for, you're looking for humble learners with a trajectory that is aiming towards Jesus. Not a straight line necessarily, but it's kind of going that way. Second application. This one I think is a little harder. Move away from those who stubbornly refuse to believe. Stubbornly. What if you don't do that? Well, people are going to call themselves disciples who aren't. That's not good. And even worse, they'll maybe stick around and call themselves disciples. And slowly, they're going to, re- they're going to make sure your culture isn't about Jesus. Because they're not either. And if that sounds like you... If that sounds like you, if you're that person, here's your application. You cannot stubbornly disbelieve and call yourself a disciple. And that's an awkward thing to say, isn't it? Let me draw attention again to that word, stubbornly. I'm not saying you don't struggle from time to time. But if that struggle become so stubborn that one day you realize I'm speaking evil about Christianity. I'm mocking Jesus. He means nothing to me. Please know, if that is you, that is not good. That's not a normal place to be. Please know that that will end up destroying you If you do not get help, that's not normal. And if you don't get help and you just keep showing up, it's going to hurt everybody. Everybody. And if church discipleship isn't about Jesus, guess what? It's not really discipleship. Friends, all this here, like I get it, this is starting to get a little bit tense. It's actually going to get a little weird, but it is necessary. Paul, who is a true disciple himself, he's living just like Jesus here. He's doing it. He's already moved towards hard conversations with people who are professing disciples. He's already given years of his life teaching people and discerning who do I water and who do I cut off. He is making it all about Jesus. And because of that, the tension is going to be worth it. And I need you to know that about the tension. The tension is not bad. The tension is for good. So in light of that, as it gets more tense, 
Let me read verses 11 through 18. Look for the discipleship. Look for the people who are following Jesus here. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and mastered all them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. Did that get a little awkward there for a minute? Okay, let's make sense of that. The third thing we learn here is that disciples see themselves as conduits of the Lord's power and not generators. Conduits and not generators. Let me first set up that contrast that we see here in discipleship by highlighting a little bit of language. Look at verse 11. There's all these miraculous healings, but it's like it's not really even Paul doing it. The language is this. God is doing miracles through Paul. I mean, the clothing is healing people. And this is all done freely. God's just doing it right through Paul. Now, contrast that with these Jewish exorcists. To give you some context, these are guys, and what they would do is they would go around and they would invoke all kinds of chants in an effort to supposedly heal people. And of course, this was done for a small fee. And then kind of gather chants. And a lot of them would just try a bunch and see what worked. And I'd like to think that how that happened is as Paul is putting on quite a show, he's healing people and it's free. And they're like, we got to get in on this action. I said, they try the name of Jesus. Maybe this will work. And in a huge understatement, it doesn't work. In fact, consider this contrast. Look at this. Paul's ministry resulted in the giving of the Holy Spirit and the gift of tongues. But these men are speaking the name of Jesus. And what happens? An evil spirit and the gift is their own severe beating. That's what they got. No tongues. And what's crazy is even this evil spirit seems to get it. He knows they don't have any power. You can't just throw the name of Jesus around. 
It's not yours. You just do whatever with. And it's actually almost kind of funny. But if you actually were to watch this scene unfold, you know, this demon-possessed guy just kind of turns his head, keeps his eyes locked, says it, coming out like the exorcist or something, you know? And then he beats up seven guys to the point where they run out of the house and they're bleeding, they're naked. This is scary. This is dark. This is what your spirits are going to do to you, Ephesus. This is what you get when you play with Jesus. Here's what this contrast teaches us. A real disciple, that's Paul, he knows he's a conduit for the power of God working in him by the Holy Spirit. God's going to heal me. God's going to heal people through me. All right. God's going to give me tongues. Great. If he wants to do it, he'll do it. I don't demand that. The point is, Jesus does whatever he wants through me. That's how it works. These are waters of life overflowing. The water's coming through. But a fake disciple, that's these sons, they think of themselves as the generator or the power source. Here's the contrast. Jesus does whatever I want as long as I say it right. That's the contrast. Do you get it? There's a wonderful Christian named Jerry Bridges. And a bunch of years ago, he made a comparison and he likened a disciple of Jesus to a power drill. Capable of a lot of building. Good stuff. But worthless without electricity. Absolutely worthless. Just sits there. That's what God working in people is like. You are useless without that. And you are only useful with it. That's the point. So how does this apply? See yourself as a conduit. This is if you're a Christian. Say you faithfully share Jesus with people. Or like Paul, you invest in them for years. Or say you pray for them and they don't get healed. I mean, Paul invested in people for years and some of them just didn't get it. That's okay. It is not in your power to save people or to heal them. That is not your authority. God saves who he wants. He heals who he wants. None of them deserve either. It's not your job. And how about you guys? But there have been so many instances in my life as a discipler. And I get down because I'm thinking that's my job. They didn't believe. Oh man, I just must not have said it right. You know, or maybe if I just invested them a little longer. Don't burden yourself with that struggle. God is working in people right now and you're going to come along and say a few things to them and poof, it's going to click. It was God and he's using you. 
So this is the second application, and it's for those of you who don't know Jesus or who aren't sure. Know that Jesus is not your plaything. He's not a name that you call on when life is hard. And you need to get bailed out. You don't just pray to him with really important sounding words when you really want something to happen. You don't just say his name when you want to get a spouse or when you want to grow your business. If you attempt to do this, then you are attempting to master Jesus. And when that happens, you, like these men, will be mastered yourself. You don't have any power. And my point is, that's good news because Jesus has all power. Your only hope is the power of Jesus. That's your hope. And all that, when you combine it with a little bit of evil spirits and a beating, sounds kind of terrifying. You might feel a little bit scared at that. What do I do? What hope is there? Well, the good thing is about this scene is terrifying for the people of Ephesus, but it's not in vain. This tension, this fear actually gets used for good. Many in Ephesus see this stuff. And in the last verse we read, they confess. They realize, man, we don't have any power. And the stuff we're hoping in, it wants to kill us. What do we do? And they confess. That's great news. And in this, with our last two verses, it sets up a climax of repentance. And guess what? It brings about many real disciples. Let me read verses 19 and 20. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So here's the last thing we learn here in this text. If you're a disciple, you put your old life to death. That's the last thing we learn. So let me sum up real quick everything we learned so far as we're looking at this bonfire. Point one. A disciple is saved by Jesus and given God's Holy Spirit. In other words, it's all about Jesus. Point two. A disciple moves towards those who see Jesus and away from people who stubbornly don't. It's all about Jesus. Point three. A disciple is aware that Jesus is the power and they are the conduit because it's all about Jesus. And so, in this fiery scene, I think the question gets totally resolved. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Well, since it's all about Jesus, that means it is not at all about the disciple. Not at all. That's good news. 
And this is illustrated right here in flames. The old life gets put to death. Now, for so many in Ephesus, it is all about Jesus. So how does this apply? To the Christian and non-Christian, the application is the same. If you are a disciple, or if you're going to be a disciple, the old life has to go. Will this be painful, and will it cost a lot? Yeah. Do you know how much these books cost? 50,000 pieces of silver? This is millions of dollars. Do you know how many historians would want this stuff? And they just burn it. And you know what? When people become Christians, sometimes they get rid of all the stuff associated with their former life. And I have the, I have the audacity to tell them no. I met a guy and he was like, you know, I'm going to sell my books. I'm like, why? So somebody can read that stuff? Why would you want them to read that stuff? Get rid of it. Gone. Don't sell it. Don't be concerned with the money. I'll be honest, man. Sometimes I just get so calloused as a believer for years that somebody wants to burn some old book and I tell them no. Some of us need to burn some books around here. Not here, not on the lawn. <laughs> Let me get back to my notes. <laughs> yeah, this is going to cost a lot. But you know what? It's priceless. It's worth it. You may have to abandon old ways of thinking like in point one. You might have to get rid of all the old stuff you used to know. It may take a lot of time and it might sever some relationships like in point two. And you're also going to be humbled as you realize how powerless you are without Jesus like in point three. It's going to be very painful. But here's the good news. You won't be doing this alone. The Holy Spirit will help you. You're not alone. We learned a lot today, I'd like to think, about discipleship here in Ephesus. And against all odds, even with all these ignorant so-called disciples who God just lovingly blessed with knowledge of Jesus and the Holy Spirit and even through stubborn so-called disciples who stubbornly refused to believe and even through all these shady so-called disciples who tried to invoke the name of Jesus and were mastered by the things they tried to control. Guess what happened? We still ended with verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mighty. Praise God for the power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, do you see how discipleship is really all about Jesus? The radical growth is possible 
all by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because you, if you believe Jesus was dead and resurrected, you have been made clean. Just as a reminder, here's how you were made clean. Just in case you've forgotten. You were made clean because Jesus was, so to speak, the perfect disciple. Jesus didn't come to Ephesus from another city. He came to earth from heaven. And he did it to make disciples out of 12 much less likely candidates than the 12 guys we met today. And he confronted many so-called disciples who stubbornly refused to believe him and he left them and he went to those who would believe. He did all this stuff. And he both healed people with his garments and he cast out demons. He did both. And to pay the cost of your sin, he was sent bloodied and naked, not running into the darkness like the sons of Sceva, but he was laid dead in a grave. And then God raised him up. And if that power can raise Jesus from the dead, I'd like to think he can change you and your friends and your family too. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, is to believe in that and to share that and if you believe that then you are clean and you have the Holy Spirit and you are a disciple and if that's you I invite you to join us for communion this morning because what we do when we eat communion is it doesn't level us up it doesn't make us feel better. It doesn't fix us. It points us to the only one who can. So if that's you, if you believe in Jesus, then I ask you to join us this morning.